Beloved congregation in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 begins to describe the body of Christ, the spiritual body of Christ, with the analogy of the physical body. He uses the eyes, the ears, the hands, and the feet, the nose, the mouth, and he speaks about the unity that we have, but also the diversity in the body of Jesus Christ. There are many members, but there is one body. And all the members are necessary within the body. Each has its specific function within the life of the body. And it is called then to exercise that function, even as we saw in verse 16 of Ephesians 4, that each part would do its share and it would exercise itself so that there would be growth of the body. And this is what we need. We need the people of God to be faithful and diligent with the gifts and the calling that God has given to them, that they would function with that gift within the body of Christ. To see that as important in the life of the church. I'm not sure that that is seen very well today. I think there are many people who don't even know and realize where they have been gifted or what they have been gifted with and don't know where they fit in and don't even think about fitting in in the life of the church. And so the reality of it is that 20% of the people do 80% of the work in the church. And that ought not to be. We all have a particular function in the life of the church. There was a congregation once within the uh, Reformed congregation, but it's in the bulletin, it said a minister, and it said there are 500 and some ministers in this congregation. Well, what did that mean? means it's all of us, right? As Paul had said, that the pastor has a particular function to train up the people for the work of ministry so that each part would do its share. So that we all have a function and a part in the body. There is unity. Paul speaks of the unity. He speaks of the diversity. And both are important. There is unity and diversity in the body of Christ. It's important because if you're an ear, you cannot be an eye, and so the eye must not try to make the ear an eye. You understand? And oftentimes we do that. Oftentimes we want people to be like us. God has not called us to be clones of one another. We are called to be like Jesus Christ. We are called to emulate Him, to be like Him, who has all the gifts and all the calling and all of the blessings belong to Him. We are to aim at Him. So, Paul then has speaking about the body and the unity that we have in Jesus Christ. This has become a difficulty uh, within our, our day and age. I think it's always been a difficulty. Denominations always pose difficulties in the life of the church. Uh, but uh, there is a reason for that. I don't think denominations are necessarily sin. I think they are a result of sin. It's a consequence of sin. Because of sin, we see in a glass darkly. Then we see face to face. But it's difficult to get along, isn't it? There are not, as, there are not a lot of people that we can agree with across the board theologically um, because of sin. Some believe this way, some believe that way. But let me ask you, are they not part of the body? I have a friend uh, that uh, he doesn't live in, in this state. <laughs> it's, 
I better not say anything because he would know if he listens to the sermons that I'm talking about him. But anyway, he is, uh, he's reformed in his doctrine of salvation, uh, but he is baptistic in his mode of baptism. And I believe he is a zealous uh, believer. I believe that he is one who is in union with me in the body of Christ. That we are joined together spiritually forever. And yet we don't see eye to eye on that. But I believe that he is a member of the body of Christ. And it's because of sin. Because of sin, we don't always see the sacraments rightly. There are those who think that Christ's body is in under and through the bread and the wine. There are those who believe it's just a memorial. All we do is remember that Christ gave his life for us. And there are those that have a spiritual understanding that Christ is here spiritually and he works through the elements with the declaration of God's word upon the soul. So it's more than a memorial, but it's not a physical presence of Jesus Christ. And therefore, we can't come together. That happened during the Reformation period as well. There are always those difficulties, but we have to understand and realize that there are real genuine believers in other denominations who don't believe exactly what we believe. And the truth is always important. I know that we speak about, well, that's secondary, and that's not salvific, and that doesn't matter with regards to my salvation. All truth matters. No truth is secondary in that sense. God calls us to live according to His Word. And to live according to His Word, we need to be people of the book. Which, I'll tell you, in the Reformed Church, uh, that's a shame. Because there are many who are not people of the book. There are many of you this morning who I've told you since I have been here as your pastor probably more than a thousand times to be reading the Word of God, cultivating Scripture in your life. And you still don't do it. And we have visits and I ask you and you say, well, I haven't been reading the Word. Why not? How are we going to walk together? How are we going to be agreed? Because most church schisms and problems are a result of not thinking biblically. And then you start gossiping and slandering and backbiting and running your mouth off of things that you don't know because you're not one who is in the Word. Well, I believe this, okay? Then demonstrate it from Scripture. Well, I can't. You can't because you're just parroting an answer that you heard on the radio. You can't defend it because you don't know what the Scripture says about it. You're just assuming that it says it because so-and-so mentioned it. Maybe they're wrong. The authority is not me. The authority is not a man on the radio. The authority is Jesus Christ speaking through His Word. So we are to examine all things in light of Scripture. We are to know and to understand the things that are of chief importance and the things that are of lesser importance. Oftentimes, we strain at a gnat and swallow camels. That's what we do. We strain at gnats, we swallow camels. Uh, we, don't even, we don't even think correctly about certain things. The apostle wants to, the, the believer to understand the unity within the church and strive for unity. Uh, if you're not one who's in the Word of God, you're not striving for unity. 
Because if you're in the Word of God, your mind is going to be held captive to Jesus Christ. And as your mind is held captive to Jesus Christ, you are going to walk more in step with those who are bringing their minds captive to Jesus Christ, which is going to promote unity in the body. I don't have a a crisis about how the mode of baptism is. Now, uh, putting my cards on the table, I think that if you are consistent scripturally, then you are going to baptize your children. It's the covenant sign of entrance of this infant into the covenant community. And to be then raised up in the fear and instruction of the Lord as under the covenant of grace, not as a pagan. There are many that I have friends that are Baptistic and they believe in what's called believer's baptism. That only when you profess your faith are you then baptized. And so they do not baptize their children. To me, that is inconsistent with the continuity of the covenant of the old and the new covenant. The new covenant, uh, circumcision is replaced by water baptism in the new covenant. And it's a better covenant. It's an inclusive covenant when it includes the women, it includes the girls and the boys, whereas in the old covenant, it was circumcision for the males and the women, the female, were subsumed underneath the headship of the father. So there is a continuity there with the covenant. Circumcision is then replaced by baptism in the new covenant. And why you see so many in the new covenant as being adults baptized is simply because Christ instituted it in the New Covenant. I mean, you've got to be blind if you can't see that. So, then household baptisms took place. But the, 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 the Reformed have always believed that there is that continuity from the Old to the New. Baptism doesn't save you. There is an error there with a lot of Reformed folks. Boy, I've been baptized. I'm in the Kingdom. No, you're not. It's a sign and a symbol to faith. Not of faith, to faith. That you believe upon certain promises. That you parents who have your children baptized, you are to teach them and instruct them in the ways of the Lord. That is what you have vowed. To pray with them, to pray for them, to lead them, and to lead a godly example before them. This is your responsibility. But you are to speak to them about heaven and hell and the judgment to come and faith in Jesus Christ. You have to speak to them about the types and the shadows, the ceremonies, all fulfilled in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. You have covenanted before God to speak and to teach that to your children. And then you don't do it. And then you become unfaithful with what you vowed before God and before a congregation of people. And then we want to point fingers at the Baptists. Well, they do. Well, what do we do? What do we don't do? Unity. It's hard. It's difficult. There is the diversity. Paul makes the shift here, as I said last Lord's Day, from position to practice. Chapters 1 through 3, as he often does, he splits up the indicative and the imperative. The indicative simply being what it is. It's a statement of fact. It's what the Lord says, who we are, uh, what He has done for us in Jesus Christ. The imperative is the mood of command. It's what God now commands us to do as those who are the redeemed. You have been brought into the household of... Let me use this example. You, You adopt a child into your home. You set your love and affection on this child. The child doesn't earn it. 
The child doesn't deserve it. For whatever purpose and reason within your own mind, you set your love and affection on that child. You go to the adoption agency, you tell them, you do whatever you need to do, and you take that child and you bring that child into your home. That child takes upon the family name and all the benefits of the family. There are other children in the home, but this one now shares in the inheritance with these other children, just like he was a natural born child of the home. That's the benefit of being adopted. Now, as parents, you begin to teach this young child how to live in the home. Because being in the orphanage, first thing he does is he starts throwing his food everywhere, jumping up on the table, screaming and yelling, and you grab a hold of him, sit him down. We don't do that in this family. Now notice something. He doesn't begin behaving to become a member of the family. He begins behaving because he is a member of the family. That's what we find here in the book of Ephesians. We live a thankful life. We strive to be obedient to the God who has adopted us into his family because of the grace in Christ Jesus and that alone. And we begin to become obedient to not only some, but all the commandments of God. We start striving for obedience out of a thankful heart. Not to be a child, but because I am a child. This is what Paul speaks about as a different walk. And he says here uh, that we are to walk worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Understand it in this way. We're never worthy. We're unworthy. Christ is worthy. What that means is living appropriate to the calling in the, as the people of God. It's a balance scale, as it were. The scales balance out. That's what we're striving for. Uh, that we be who we are in Jesus Christ. Then Paul moves into verse 4 and he says this. There is one body and one spirit. The body is a metaphor. That's what he's using here. It's a metaphor for the church. Paul is speaking about the church. The church is referred to as the body, as the church, as the kingdom, as the redeemed, as the temple. There are different metaphors used in scripture, but that's what he's referring to. There is one body. There may be individual congregations around this world, but there is only one spiritual body of Jesus Christ. And beloved, you are not a member of the body of Christ unless you have been born again. If you have not been born from above, born of the Holy Spirit, you have not come in a newness of life, you have not been resurrected spiritually, then you are not a part of the body. The body is those who are truly redeemed, not just simply members of an outward, visible representation of the church. Jesus said there will be many tares mixed in with the wheat. There will be many goats mixed in with the sheep. Are you a sheep? Or are you a goat? Now, how you answer that, and your reasoning of whether or not you're a sheep, uh, that has great significance. Okay, so some of you may be saying, well, I'm a sheep. And my question to you is, and how do you know that? Well, because I was baptized. You're not a sheep because you were baptized. You may be a sheep. You may have been baptized. 
but you're not a sheep because you were baptized. Well, you say, well, I'm a sheep because my parents were Christians. No, you're not a sheep because your parents were Christians. Well, I'm a sheep because I went through the rite of confirmation. No, you're not a sheep because you went through the rite of confirmation. Well, I'm a sheep because I professed Jesus Christ. No, you are not a sheep because you professed Jesus Christ. You are only a sheep because you have been born of the Spirit of God. Notice that you do not add yourself to the church. You are added to the church. It's Christ who adds to the church. I will build my church. Christ takes them and then He is the one who engrafts them into His body. And He does that by His Holy Spirit. Those who are in Christ have been baptized by one spirit into one spiritual, mystical body of Jesus Christ. There's the unity. Now we ought to strive for doctrinal unity. We ought to strive to be able to walk together practically because we are one in Jesus Christ and we may have different doctrinal distinctives. So there's a striving for unity. But there's only one body. There is only one true church. You know, one is used seven times here in these short verses. Seven times. Numbers are significant in Scripture. Uh, One speaks of unity. Two speaks of division. Three speaks of a completeness, a wholeness. Seven speaks of perfection. That's what you find here. You have a maturity, as it were, of the, the culmination of oneness in these verses. One body, one spirit. One spirit. The working of the spirit. When you know the word of God, you understand the working of the spirit. The spirit is not going to lead you in ungodly ways. The spirit is not going to lead you in a path of darkness. The spirit is not going to lead you in rebellion to God. The Spirit is always going to lead you to Christ because His mission, His responsibility, His work is to take the things of Christ and make them plain to the people of God. Sometimes you'll find homes that are in exclusive areas and there'll be spotlights that are put in the front yard and shine up on the house. Now, if I was to ask you, what were the spotlights for? So that you could drive your car by and say, wow, look at those spotlights. Let's go look at those spotlights. Let's go check out the spotlights. Those are great spotlights. wonder how many they have out there. And you walk away and some kid says to you, did you see that house? What house? What do you think the spotlights were there for? To extenuate, to, to, uh, to accent the home. It was there to shine and to bring the brilliance of the home. The work of the Holy Spirit is to shine upon Jesus. People use the Spirit of God in all kinds of weird ways today. And they're all contrary to the things of God. Well, the Spirit of God told me to do this. That's not the Spirit of God. He's not going to lead you contrary to the Word. Well, the Spirit of God spoke to me. He did not speak to you apart from the Word of God. Don't come up to me with all this pious thing. The Spirit of God spoke to me this morning, told me to have pancakes. He didn't tell you that. I'll tell you that right to your face. 
He didn't tell you that. People think it's all pious, the Holy Spirit. But that's your own imagination. Maybe it was the unholy spirit that spoke to you. He never leads you contrary to Christ. He was always leading you in the path of holiness. So when I choose, and if I choose to go in this path of unholiness, unrighteousness, that's not the Spirit's leading. That's my sin. The Spirit of God is the one who includes us into the body of Christ the church. Notice that we were called. The kaleo. The Greek term there, and what Paul is referring to here, is not simply the outward call. Jesus said, many are called, few are chosen. The Bible speaks of two different callings. There is the outward call, there is the inward call. The outward call is, let me just give it to you. Come unto me, all you who are heavy laden and burdened, and I will give you rest, Jesus said. Look unto me, all ye ends of the earth, and be saved. Ho unto all that thirst, come unto me, and I will give you drink. That's the outward call of the gospel. The inward call is the Holy Spirit doing that ineffable, significant work in the heart, convincing within that this is the call of Christ, and then it liberating the will, enabling you to respond to that call of the gospel. That's what Paul is speaking about here. You were called in one hope. Now the inward call doesn't come apart from the outward call. It's through the outward call of the gospel that there is an inward call of the Holy Spirit on those whom were elected unto salvation before the foundation of the world. And that's the work of the Spirit. And notice that we are called to one hope of our calling. The Greek term there for hope is elpis. And what hope means is confidence. It means expectation. I have simply given it the phrase, it's a confident expectation in the promises of God. That's the hope. The hope of the believer is that we will be redeemed. It's not a wishful thinking. It's not, boy, I really hope that this will happen. I don't know if it will, but I really hope. No, it's a confidence. It's an expectation of a future event that you are trusting in with all confidence you've put your eggs in one basket. This is going to come to pass because God cannot lie. It's the confident expectation of the promises of God being fulfilled. And the hope of our calling is Christ's likeness. That's it. It's the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. You being conformed to His image. That's the calling. The calling to be like Christ, to honor Christ, to obey Christ, to trust Christ. We, we live in a church age that I think is weak. <clears throat> Most of my reading, I would say, is probably from 1400 uh, through the late 1800s. And when I see the church in that age... Um, I'm envious. And they had a lot of problems. They had a lot of persecution. There was a lot of difficulties in those days. I mean, think about no running water. Think about no heat for your house. How would you heat your homes? Think about the food. Wasn't grocery stores like we have today. I mean, different, whole different living. But zealous 
for the gospel. In that day, you would be put to the stake, burned, if you were found to be a heretic. How conscientious would you be in studying the truth of God's word so you be not found as one who is aberrant in your theology? Today, it's like people don't care. We have a church age because there is a lot of affluence, especially in the United States, where we think we're strong. The church thinks it's strong. There are many of you who think you're strong of yourself, that you can stand. I can do it. And that's your weakness. Our delusion of strength is the greatest weakness in the life of the church. Because we think we have need of nothing. And we don't look to the only one who can give us strength, and that's Christ. Because we truly are naked. And we're blind. And we are needy. And we need Thee every hour, Lord. But then we don't act like it, do we? But Paul declared in 2 Corinthians 12 that when I am weak, then I'm strong. He understood physical and spiritual weakness and therefore his dependence was upon the Lord. But if you don't think you're weak, if you think you're strong, then you bypass all of that. And you outsource. I don't need the Lord. I don't need His Word. I'm pretty good. I'm doing pretty good. I'm making money. Coming. I'm a member of the church. Hey, everything seems to be working out for me. You are weak. And you don't really realize. You don't realize how weak you truly are. Because you're blind to your own weakness. If you're reading the Scriptures. And you don't see your weakness. You've missed it. You're under a delusion. You're under a spell from the wicked one. And you look to yourself and confidence in yourself. And I'll strengthen myself. I have no strength of myself. I have no ability to make it to the kingdom of heaven. Christ is the one who brings me to heaven. You know, the one who is in a delusion of their strength says, Well, you know, Jacob's ladder came down, so I can march right up. And I do, and I'm full strength in doing it. You don't realize... That that ladder was there for God to come down to us in the person of Jesus Christ. It's not for you to climb your way up to heaven. It is for God in Christ to come down to us. The only mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus. There is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by Him. There is one mediator, the writer of the Hebrews says, is Jesus Christ and Him alone. Look to Him and be saved all ye ends of the earth. One faith, one hope, one faith, one Lord, one baptism. Notice, one Lord. It's one Lord, Jesus Christ. I bow to no man. I bow to the Lord Christ. Man will want you to bow to Him. We are to bow to Christ as Lord. There is one true faith. There are not many ways to God. There is one way to God. And His name is Jesus. It's through that one Lord revealed in Scripture that is our entrance into the kingdom of heaven. And there is one true faith in Him. The faith that was once for all delivered unto the saints. If you believe anything other than the gospel of Scripture, you are under a delusion. 
If you think you need to add something to what Christ has done, you are under a delusion. If you think your works qualify you to enter into the kingdom of heaven, you are under the deception of the wicked one. We are to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, salvation in Him. He has fulfilled all the demands of the law. I have not, you have not. One hope of salvation, one hope of forgiveness, and it's Jesus. That's the one faith. There's one baptism. Again, the unity. There is a spiritual baptism. There is a water baptism, an outward baptism that points to the spiritual baptism. And that is in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Again, a unity and diversity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One name into the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. There's one God and Father of all. Notice one God and Father. Is God the Father of all men? Or all men, my brothers? You hear that in the world, don't you? Hey, brother. Never met that guy in my life. Hey, brother. Are we brothers just because we went to the same college? Are we brothers because we're from the same state? Are we brothers because we were in the military? Are, what makes us brothers? God is the creator of all men, but not all men are sons of God. The Bible speaks of sons of the devil and sons of God. The sons of God are engrafted into the body of Jesus Christ. They are adopted. We come into this world as sons of the devil. Sons of the wicked one. Held captive by Satan to do his will. John chapter 8. 2 Timothy chapter 2. We are rebels against God. Titus chapter 3. We are those that hate God, hate one another. We need to be engrafted into the body of Christ. Paul speaks about that in Galatians chapter 3. Adoption into the family of Christ. Speaks about that in the book of Romans as well. Adopted into the family of God. There is one God and Father. One creator of all things. And our God is one. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons, one essence in the Godhead. Mysterious, ineffable. But the reality is, there is one God. Uh, we find that the Shema in Hebrews, or in uh, uh, Numbers chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And yet we find in Scripture, there are three persons that are all called God. And yet there are not three gods, there is one God. And He is the Father of all that He has redeemed. God has become our Father. This, this was something uh, that was... Uh, the, the Jews would not go there. They would not call God Father. Jesus calls us to call God our Father. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. God has become our Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice the attributes there, how, it, how the, the Apostle Paul describes God, who is above all. God is the omniscient God. He is all-knowing. God is the omnipotent God. He is the God of all power and authority. God is the omnipresent God. He is everywhere present. There is nowhere that He is not. He encompasses heaven and earth and is beyond the expanse of the creation. It's mind-boggling. 
You begin to think about the attributes of God. We say, well, our God is big. No, no, God's not big. God is immense. You see, big is something that I can compare something else to. And this is what we read in Isaiah. With whom will you liken me? With whom will you compare me to? God is immense. He goes beyond our ability to comprehend. But this is our God. And Paul says that he is above all, through all, and in you all. In you all means you who are truly in Christ. Can you fathom that? God dwells in us by His Spirit. There is the essence of the Trinity that dwells in us because they are not divided. The Spirit of Christ dwells within us. That's the triune Godhead indwelling the believer. That's wondrous. We are the temple of the living God. God dwells in us. You are not your own. You belong to the faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. You are then indwelt by the Spirit of God. It is, it's ineffable. I mean, how much can you say about that? How deep can you go? I, I can't understand that. You go down to the ocean, and you take your glass and you dip it into the ocean. And you all know, you don't have all the ocean in your glass. But you have all that the ocean is in your glass. God dwells in us. That's the sense. That all that God is, He dwells within us. It's incomprehensible. That being the case, beloved, how should we strive for unity? How should we put aside those things that don't amount to a hill of beans? How should we strive to take the lowest place? I got to thinking about this this past week. We are called to be slaves of Christ. We are called to be foot washers. How many of you like to wash feet? Now, it doesn't have much significance in our day because we all have shoes and socks and, well, some of us have socks. And some of you, maybe not all of you, took a shower this morning. Cleaned your toes. What if we didn't have the showers that we have today? And what if we had sandals? And what if we lived in the desert? And what if all of our getting from one place to the next, our transportation, was our feet? And when you walked a mile or two and you got to a certain place and it's 90 degrees out and your feet are sweaty and it's dusty on the roads and when you got to the home, your feet looked a mess. And there a foot washer was. Who as you came into the home would take your shoes off, your sandals off, and would begin washing your feet. That'd be kind of nice, wouldn't it? Be nice to get your feet washed, but how many of you would sign up to be the foot washer? But then that's what you find with Christ. Jesus says, I have come not to be served, but to serve and give my life a ransom for many. He's in the upper room and he girds himself with a towel and he kneels down and he begins washing the disciples' stinky, dirty feet. The Lord of the universe. The one who upholds all things with the word of His power kneels down and washes feet and we won't. Something wrong with that, isn't there? There's something wrong with our delusions 
of strength, in our delusions of power, in our delusions of significance, our delusions of importance, our looking down on our brothers and sisters in Christ, thinking they are in a lower status than I am, and they ought to be washing my feet. Here's my question. Uh, Who here, uh, what individual's feet would you not wash? And the moment you say, well, I wouldn't wash so-and-so's feet, then you are no longer acting like a slave of Christ. And you are no longer striving for unity. Serving. We like to be served. But we call, we've been called to serve. I've used the analogy before. I spoke about it yesterday to somebody. You take a triangle... And you look at the triangle, and the big boss man is right on the top. And all the little peasants are working for the man. Doing everything for the man on the top. And when you come to the kingdom of Christ, it's inverted. Because Jesus said, the greatest in the kingdom is a servant of all. So in the world schema, everybody's got to serve me. I've climbed tooth and nail to the top to get on the top so you all can grovel at my feet and serve me. And Jesus said that if you're truly great in the kingdom, you're serving everybody else. That's the demonstration of greatness. How deluded are we, beloved? How often do we have conflict in the church because we're not striving for unity and servanthood? How often do we think others should be serving us? How often do we think we're above other people? And it creates strife and conflict rather than unity. How often do we not pick up the Scriptures? How often do we not spend time with God in His Word, cultivating the truth that it might promote unity of the body? And by not doing these things, we we create schism in the church. Unity. Strive, beloved, for unity. Even as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, unity. Strive for that unity by being a servant, by being a slave of Christ, by following your Master, by picking up your cross daily and following after Him. It's not easy. I get it. But that's the calling of the Christian. He must increase. I must decrease. Amen. Shall we pray?